Hello and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Tyler Merrick. Tyler is a personal trainer, business owner, dad, and three-time Paralympian in goalball. He is currently training to represent Team USA in his fourth game in Tokyo this summer. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. I was reading through your bio and noticed that you've been competing at the highest level in your sport since 2004, where you won your first Paralympic bronze medal. And now, nearly 20 years later, you are still training and competing at that very high level, preparing for the Tokyo Games. And I would like to start with how training and preparing for this Games is different. You're at a much later point in your career, you're more mature, you've had the experience, and I know that mentally, for for most athletes going into their second, third games, they approach it in a different manner. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, after that span of time, certainly your your body reacts a little bit differently. You you learn it a little bit more, and you, you become a little smarter about the way you train and what you do. Um, so I, I think that a couple of things are very different from, from you know, when I was training uh, for the 2004 games. Uh, you know, the first time I put on a USA jersey was in 2001. So I had a couple of years to work with the team before going into those games. And the difference between then and now is um, a few things. So first of all, uh, you know, our, our sport, the resources that we have now have grown quite a bit. Um, we have a residency program in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where several, several of our guys are here training 24-7. So that's, that's a really big switch from, uh, you know, back then when I was, I'd hit the weight room by myself, I'd go and run by myself, I'd do my stretches by myself, and then, you know, three, four times a year, we'd get together and have training camps and then try to go and compete, right? So it's, it's a whole different feel, uh, for in in that sense, um, you know, from from a personal training standpoint, I just don't recover as quickly as I used to. <laughs> so a lot of my training now is is very focused. Um, you know, in doing all the strength training, I'm still keeping up with all these guys. But uh, you know, every night before I go to bed, I've got a, a foam rolling and stretching routine that I do to kind of keep myself moving. Um, a lot of very good eating, uh, high antioxidant foods and things like that. So I've really gotten a lot better about taking care of myself and uh, through the process. That's very important. And I can certainly attest to the body aging, uh, whether we like it or not, as we progress through our careers and the things we took for granted as teenagers are incredibly hard to do in your late 20s and certainly 30s. I commend you for continuing for that time frame and going through injuries and just the mental stress of it all. Before I get a little bit more into your highlights of some of your um, moments in your career, I want to talk about goalball because I think, you know, obviously that's the sport that you compete in and most people are probably not familiar with goalball. Doing a little bit of digging, I found it absolutely fascinating that it was invented in the 1940s to assist with the rehabilitation of visually impaired World War II veterans. So it has this amazing history. For people that have never watched the sport, can you explain it a little bit so we have an idea of what it entails? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm glad you brought this up too, because I, I love 
obviously I love the sport, <laughs> so I love bragging on it a little bit. And yeah, you're the the sport is almost seventy five years old, and um, it's really unique. Uh, and, and a kind of a world of its own for multiple reasons. And one of those reasons being that, uh, as you had mentioned, the, the sport was created specifically for an athlete with a disability. Um, so across the Olympics and the Paralympics, there's just tons of amazing sports and events. Um, the Paralympics is, is fascinating because Ultimately, what you're doing is you're taking these these athletes who have a physical disability and you you change a sport in some fashion to eliminate the impact of that disability, right? So in, in the Olympics, you have basketball. In the Paralympics, you have wheelchair basketball. So, you know, they're fantastic athletes. They're great skill at what they do, but they're, they're not ambulatory, right? So you're minimizing the impact of that disability. Well, the thing that's so unique about goalball is that um, it doesn't have a, a like a partner sport. It wasn't a spinoff of a mainstream sport. It was designed originally for a disabled athlete, for a person who is visually impaired. So yeah, you have these soldiers who come back from, from war. They're the same athletes, the same jocks, the same competitive spirit. And these physicians got together and said, let's create a, a sport specifically for these guys. And they, they came up with goalball. And it's kind of grown and developed into a big international sport from there. And so ultimately what you've got is it's kind of a mix of, of handball, a little bit of volleyball, a little bit of soccer. Um, the, the essentials of the game are it's played indoors and it's played on a, uh, a nine by 18 meter court. So kind of a, a standard metric volleyball court. The reason it's called goalball is because at each end, that full nine meters, the entire end of the court is the goal for each team. And there's a large net at each side. It's like a, like an overstretched hockey goal. So it's nine meters wide and a meter and a half high. And the game is three versus three. So three athletes will line up in front of their net. The other team's athletes will line up in front of their net. And the, the ball, which has bells embedded inside of the ball... Uh, it's about the size of a basketball, weighs about three pounds. So it's it's kind of hefty. It's got some weight and some firmness to it. You you take kind of a running step approach, almost like you would bowling, and you throw the ball underhand as hard as you can across the floor. And the other players will put their body in front of the ball like a soccer goalie to defend their net, right? So you kind of, all three players work in tandem to to. Uh, defend the, the goal, and then they'll catch it and stop it, get up and throw it back. It's a quick back and forth volley. The The trick of the game is everybody's blindfolded while you're doing this. So no usable vision whatsoever. Um, all based off of hearing, all based off of tactual feel. The the court is sectioned off with, uh, with lines, uh, like string with tape laid over top. So as you're moving around, you can feel with your feet or if you're down in a blocking position, you can feel with your hands kind of the, the line that you're at. And um, so it's, it's very like high communication, um, very audible sport, a lot of core and leg strength required because it's a, it's a quick, fast volley, 10-second shot clock, block, fetch, uh, backpedal, step, throw. Um, so it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a blast. It's a 24 minute game. It's broken up into two 12 minute halves and, uh, we burn a lot of energy <laughs> as we're, as we're playing. It sounds fascinating. And I think something that stood out that you said in a different interview is that you want people to think of it as the anti-dodgeball. 
Yeah. And that puts a good visual and that there's basically this heavy ball being thrown at 40 miles an hour. You're trying to get hit by the ball. Yep. You're trying to block the goal. And so yeah. I thought that was yeah. a, a great descriptive. And I want to touch back on your answer of, you know, the, the sound that is enveloped within the ball, the tactile nature of the the lines on the floor and the other senses that you're using to really play this sport at such a high level. And I imagine that this sport, that goalball must hinge on excellent communication and that uh, other senses come into play when you can't count on your vision and your sight. It's a team sport. And so how are you communicating and what is the dynamic like on your team? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. So, you know, when you cut out an entire sense, um, you know, your your brain will just naturally try to reach through those other senses to, to get as much sensory input as it can, right? And so um, you become very aware of what's around you when you put the blindfold on. And, and as we, uh, you know, work together as a team, ultimately, what you what you end up finding with us is is no different from you know running a press in basketball or a route in football. There's a lot of preset communication, you know. So if the ball at the other end, if we're hearing it in this zone, you know, we uh, defensively and offensively kind of break the the court up into zones. If it's in this zone, you know, the the left wing is going to set up in this spot. The center is going to set up in this spot. Right wing here. Um, the vertical distance between our players is is kind of preset based off of what defense you're running, um, the the way that you that you attack the ball, um, feet side or hand side, it depends on the the skip of the ball. So there's a lot of a lot of preset stuff, a lot of practice, and and just in game a lot of communication. You know the the center is almost like the quarterback. Typically, they're they're running the calls as to where the defense is going to line up, and um, it it does take a lot of a lot of verbal back and forth, but again, it's 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 something that maybe if if you haven't done something like that, it sounds like wow, that's crazy. But it's it's something as an athlete that you just you develop, right? It, you become very aware and you you just kind of synchronize, and it just becomes part of our game. That's so interesting. Well, I want to go to the beginning of your journey, and I guess a big part of that would be in losing part of your site and how that led you to where you are today and your amazing career as a Paralympian. I know you grew up in Michigan and sports and fitness were always very, very important in your life. You were a very active kid. If you can maybe paint a picture of what your childhood was like when you began to lose your vision and how sports really continued to be a very important backbone of who you were and, and necessary to navigate and keep in your life, even though you were losing your sight. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's very true. Sometimes maybe a little overdone when people say like, "Oh, sports just that totally saved my life." And and I, you know, I, I try not to get too emotional about that, <laughs> you know. But it really it, it made a huge impact on me. Sports was just crucial. So, uh, you know, as I'm growing up, uh, you know, my, my parents noticed something about me that was very different from my siblings at a very young age. A lot of things that I had challenges with when I would look at somebody, um, I couldn't exactly look at them directly. My eyes would always shift to the side. 
Um, you know, when we would go out for walks at night, um, I, I grew up on a farm, so we were often you know, doing chores late or, or going out, you know, for whatever reason, it, it started to get dark. And the um, as soon as it started to get a little bit dark, my vision would go completely. Uh, you know, so night blindness is kind of part of the condition. I had a really hard time tracking a ball, right? So playing basketball or football or any baseball, you know, my family all of my family played baseball and I just had such an awful time with it because of the limited field of vision that I had. And so, you know, I had these challenges growing up and um, I, when I was younger, I, I had clear enough vision that I could read regular print in a book. Uh, I could see colors and things like that. So I kind of skated by a little bit um, and didn't really start getting involved with the the quote-unquote blindness community until I was in my early teens when my vision started getting worse and worse. I, I started not being able to read my my textbooks in school. And, uh, you know, at that point, they said, okay, we need to start <laughs> getting getting some help here. We need to start getting some services. And that's where I started you know, learning how to use a cane, learning to read Braille. Um, and that's where I was introduced to adaptive sports. So I went to uh, a sports education camp at Western Michigan University put on by uh, Dr. Paul and Dr. Supanchilla. And this was a camp where they bring all of these kids in who are visually impaired and teach them how to adapt to regular sports. You know, so uh, judo and wrestling, uh, track and field, swimming, cycling. One of the sports they taught was goalball. So I, I just, I took to it very quickly because I always enjoyed team sports, ball sports. Um, I, after that, did go back to my high school and joined the track team. I did wrestling as well. So, you know, and I, I it, it empowered me to do so much more with my life. And, and from that point, you know, I, it grew into my career uh, as a personal trainer. I went to, went to school and got my bachelor's in exercise science. That grew into my career as an athlete, as a motivational speaker. Um, you know, it just, it instilled in me the confidence, I think, to do what I needed to do. And, and you know, it's just so invaluable, the impact that sports had on my life. Perhaps for those who aren't athletes, to help them understand what was it about movement or perhaps was it a team sport or the endorphins you got from moving your body or some sense of control or a goal you were moving towards that you found in physical fitness and you found in sports that perhaps you didn't find elsewhere in the world. And I'm always, I'm curious about this topic because I find there are people who just love to move and sports are just so essential to who they are uh, as people and how they move in the world. And for some people, they just completely don't get it at all. Especially, I think, for someone like you who has had to navigate with certain obstacles um, and challenges and hasn't always been easy, it's not the most obvious choice. Yeah. Yeah, it was a little little off-centered in choosing to be an, uh, an elite athlete and a personal trainer, for sure. <laughs> But at the same time, you know, there, there are a lot of good visually impaired athletes out there, you know, but to, you know, to your point, like the, it's not a, not something that people commonly reach for. And then you add in the visual impairment and all the struggles that I had with playing sports because of my visual impairment. Um, it seems kind of odd that I would lean so hard into that. Right. Um, but I, I guess for me, it's a, it's a little bit of the, the, the first part. I do love to move. 
right? So, um, you know, I became a personal trainer. I spent a number of years doing that, um, still still doing that uh, in a different format, just because I really enjoyed it. I started um, very young being active. Uh, I took several weight training classes while I was in high school and really liked that. And I just liked moving. I kind of liked the challenge of, of seeing what my body is capable of. But I think the, the thing about the sport that gripped onto me so well was that it, as far as goalball was concerned, you know, my vision decreasing and declining through, through the years. Uh, you know, I'm in my uh, mid-30s now, and it, you know, I, I have no control over the fact that I'm almost completely blind now. You know, and, it, and it's fine. It's something that I, I've worked through and I've coped with without a problem. But goalball, it didn't matter. Right, so I didn't have any control over my vision declining, but I did. No matter what my vision did, goalball was just based on my hard work, my my ability to put myself through the rigors of training, my ability to to learn and grow. So it it did, in a sense, like you like you mentioned, it did feel like um, something I had control over within a situation that I didn't. So I, I think that's part of what you know, drove me to it, you know, and, and then you, you mix in all of the, the, the fun camaraderie of being on a team sport and the challenge and the, the opportunity to travel and wear a USA Jersey, like you mix all of that together and you, you create kind of a, an addict like me who stuck around for so long. I think once you wear your first team USA jacket or t-shirt and you're representing your country overseas, it's, Pretty spectacular, and it certainly leaves a taste a taste for more. So I completely agree totally with you there. Totally agree, yeah. And also just to your point of the, the challenges that you work through and that it wasn't the easiest and it wasn't the most obvious, I just think that's such a theme across life that the difficult moments in our life ultimately define us, shape us, and make us better. They make us step up in some way. That brings me back to your very, very long accomplished career and also digging in a little deeper. You know, it's a 20-year it's a career, but also there have been certainly difficulties missing qualifying for the London Games in 2012 by just one spot. I know what it's like to put your all into training and what it's like to miss the Olympic team, um, which happened when I was training for my third Games. And I know that that had to be a very tough time and a difficult experience to process. I ask about this because I often find that these are the times that we grow. It's only when we're not winning and things are not going well that we start asking the deep questions. The questions like, did I not train the right way? Was there something wrong with me on this day? Do I still have the sport? Is it worth it? What do I say to my support team? And I'm curious what this period like was for you, perhaps both going into these qualifiers and leaving the event, because ultimately you found some resilience and four years later you won a silver medal in Brazil. Yeah, it is it is a weird thing to to think about, right? That, that transition from like not even qualifying to go to four years later winning a silver medal, right? Because I, and I, and I remember that, uh, um, in uh, 2011, we had our our last opportunity to qualify, um, 
and and I remember being at that tournament. I remember being in that situation, you know. So, um, the in in 2010, we had the World Championships, right? Top three teams qualified. We we were number four, right? And then we had the uh, uh, World uh, Qualifier, and it was like uh, top four teams qualified. We ended up being number five, and then you know it came down to our regionals, Pan Am Games. Uh, number one team qualified. We made the gold medal match and lost to Brazil by two points. You know, so it, it was it was heartbreaking. Like at every turn, it felt like we were just behind the eight ball. And uh, you know, when when I think about that, the I don't want to be over dramatic about it, but it was painful, right? It was like I was so bummed after that event, and it took me a long time. I. I really had a hard time even watching the 2012 games to see, you know, how the athletes did and how the team shook down because I was so like heartsick at not being there. Um, but, at, but I, I think that um, the thing that brought me around to that resilience of, of saying like, okay, we are, we are still a good team. I'm still a good athlete. Well, number one was as odd as this sounds. So we we lost to Brazil uh, in that gold medal match in the the final qualifier opportunity. Well, Brazil went and won a silver medal in the 2012 games, and then they became the 2014 world champion. So I was like, okay, we hung with them. We didn't lose dramatically, and we didn't lose to a slouchy team. Like we're good. We're still a good team. And you know, then we we created these opportunities. We ended up starting our residency program in, I believe it was the fall of 2014. It might have been the uh, spring or summer of 2015, but um, that's when Turnstone uh, in Fort Wayne opened up their doors. And we, you know, then my guys started getting really serious and training hard. Um, you know, I like I said, I'd spent a number of years as a personal trainer. So, like, I, I was used to working hard and, and lifting heavy and challenging myself, but it felt like a lot more of a, of a whole program advancement when we got that, that residency program and said, you know what, we can, we can do this. And, and we did, we went to Rio and made some noise in, in ways that we haven't in a really long time. So it was a combination of things that led me to that. Um, and, and ultimately within myself, just knowing that I enjoy it. I'm good at it, so I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> and we just rolled with it. It's amazing to to find that because I think everyone experiences it to a different degree, but there's certainly doubt and some range, some element of despair when you've worked so hard for something and things don't go your way and it's not like a test that you can retake. It, you have to wait another four years to to give it a shot and you never know what's going to happen. And so I think that really speaks to your tenacity and uh, self-confidence to really recommit and continue to recommit. And that actually reminded me of something I wanted to ask you is I know that you had temporarily retired. I don't know, in skating, you say you hung up your skates. I don't know if you hung up your ball, <laughs> put away the ball. <laughs> But you had decided that you were you were done with your competitive career, and I would love to know what it was inside that you felt the sense of completion that you were done, and then ultimately what happened when you changed your mind. You're like, no, 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 not yet. I I have yeah, one more. In me. Yeah, classic switch. Uh, yeah, I 
again, I, I think there are a lot of factors at work here, but so I, I guess rewind the tapes a little bit to 2016, right? So we we finished not where we wanted, but we finished very well, right? Like um, anybody who's won a, a silver medal in a tournament style format like that can can maybe understand when I say like, if you had told me in 2015 that I was going to be a silver medalist in 2016 and I'd be really disappointed in that, I would have told you you were crazy, right? Like, but, you know, we we did well coming out of that tournament. I had been competing on the team at that point for 15 years. I thought, man, that's a really good run. Um, I, I've been married for uh, a long time at that. I guess I have to do the math. I think it was 17 years at that point. No, 16 years. So my wife and I will be celebrating 19 years this year. Um, so, uh, you know... <laughs> There was multiple layers that, you know, my kids are busy with with their sports and other things. So I just thought, you know what, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time that I, I call it. You know, the team's in a great spot. We've got the residency program. Um, just came off of a silver medal win. Maybe it's time for me to to hang up the skates, as it were, right? And, um, and I did for a little while. I focused on my career. I focused on uh, my education, my business stuff. And I guess I just... I found life just a little bit lacking without that competitive outlet. Um, I tried to challenge myself in other ways. I challenged myself in the weight room. I challenged myself with my with my business. I challenged myself with my my education. Tried to be competitive in those things, and and it worked to a degree. But um, once you I you said it really well, Sasha. Like once you've worn. A jacket like that. Once you've walked out into a stadium wearing a USA jersey and there's thousands of people yelling and cheering and music and flags and um, it's hard to get that out of your blood, you know. So after 2016, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 33 years old at that point. I still feel fantastic. I feel like I'm in good condition. Um, I let the team go for a little while and and then I just realized, you know what, I I miss it a lot <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm still very capable of playing this game. So um, decided to step back to the team and, and they were very welcoming of that too. So uh, I, I just, I, I tried to stay committed to it. I, I don't like to waffle on what I choose to do. Right. But I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm not done yet. I, I think I'll go back. <laughs> so I just went back to it. You bring up all the classic Symptoms yeah. of a retiring athlete. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure I was textbook. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Very textbook, and I think athletes at that yeah your level at that level are just used to these highs and lows and the intensity and all-consuming nature of training and what it feels like to hear a crowd roar representing your country. And I have to say that life after sports certainly doesn't have those same highs and lows. But you find other ways to find meaning. But that being said, definitely every competition you can do, as long as it the drive is still within you, you have to do it. It's just, I think it's it's integral to who we are. You can't really fight it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And it's, you know, honestly, the things that will drive me out, aside from the fact that as, as I get older, the, the sport just hurts a little more each year. <laughs> aside from that... <laughs> You know, we got a lot of young guys who are coming up who are hungry. And, um, you know, I 
I, I felt very comfortable leaving the team in 2016 because I felt like it was in a really good place. And, and, and it was for the most part. Um, and, and that's what I'm also seeing now. So, you know, the question about after Tokyo, am I going to keep going? Am I going to retire? I, I wouldn't, I would believe that Tokyo would be my last Paralympics. Um, you know, will I step away cold turkey right away? Eh, maybe, maybe not. You know, I kind of have to see how that plays out. But I'm very excited about our our team coming up. Um, a lot of young guys who are very excited to to step into the ranks. So um, there, it's it's in a good place, and that's a little bit consoling as I think about taking the jersey off. You know, <laughs> certainly. I want to move to a slightly different part of the podcast and talk about balance and you've shown such an ability to balance so many things in your life you trained as a Paralympian gone to school had a family started a business and I can't even imagine trying to juggle all those things at once or overlapping to some degree I guess I wanted to just let the audience know that there's certainly a misconception that athletes competing at the highest level don't have to worry about paying for training. And that might be true in some sports, but certainly not the majority. And I believe part of the business you started in physical training was in order to support your family and in order to pay for training. And so I I would love to hear a little bit about your experience and trying to balance all these factors. Yeah, you're a hundred percent right. Like, and, and I think this is true across the board for uh, most Olympians and Paralympians alike. You know, uh, um, there there's a there's a handful that um, get sponsorship opportunities and things like that, um, which is which is beautiful. I, I'm super happy for those athletes. I, I think the highest percentage are moms and dads, or um, you know, are are maybe collegiate athletes that are working through school that are maybe working nine to five, like these are, these are people, right. That need to support themselves while, uh, pursuing this passion to represent their country. And so, yeah, I think there is a misconception about that out there. And, you know, for me, um, I, I just don't like to do things halfway, you know, and, um, I've always been kind of a multitasker, uh, to, to my, to my detriment in, in some ways, right? Because when you add all that stuff up, uh, you know, going to school, training full-time, uh, working part-time, then working full-time and training, and then starting a business and and through this whole thing, you know, uh, I've been married, like I said, for almost 20 years now. It's, it'll be 19 this year. Um, we have my wife and I, my wife who is also visually impaired, you know, we, we have four kids. And so this is, you add all this stuff up and you think, my my goodness, where does it all fit? Well, truthfully, it doesn't all fit. <laughs> so I, I think in balancing it, uh, the, the first step was for me to recognize that um, all of those things that I'm passionate about, and certainly there's a pecking order, right? My my uh, my faith first, my family next, my, my work and, and hobbies after that. But um, I would. I had to come to a point where I recognized I wouldn't be able to give any one of those things the the full energy that it deserves because I loved all of them and wanted to do all of them. So, you know, that was that was step number one. And and I think once I got to that point, 
I also then realized, okay, so when I'm in in front of something, right? So whether it's okay, I'm now in training mode. Like this is my opportunity to to practice or to to train. I do it one hundred percent, right? And so, and then when I'm done with that. It's, it's quite possible that I've got several projects that I need to be working on, but it's also quite possible that my daughter is going to come into my office area and say, dad, come, you know, come push me on the swing. And so, you know, I don't have time for both, but you know, when I choose to go and push my daughter on the swing, I do it fully. I do it a hundred percent, right? I, I try to take those opportunities to, uh, to soak up, uh, whatever is in front of me. Um, and, and I think that's helped me balance throughout the years. It's, I've hardly ever done it amazingly. I've never done it perfectly. I think I've always done it pretty well. Um, but we've, we've hobbled forward as a, as a family. I've grown my business and been pretty successful as an athlete. And so I think that I've managed to, to find it pretty close to center of the mark. That reminds me of a quote that someone I work with said that you can do a really, really good job being a mom and you can do a really good job at work, but you just can't do it both at the same time. <laughs> that there's this balance that sometimes you're on it 100% at work and sometimes you give that time and energy to your family and it's, it, it is a balance. Yeah, and I think so often we're, we're our own worst critics too. Um, you know, interestingly enough, kind of circling back to that, the question of like, hey, you, you retired in 2016 and then you decided to come back with you know, what happened with that? Well, one of the factors that surprised the heck out of me, honestly, um, was, you know, I, I decided to, to hang it up and say like, okay, I'm going to be done for a little while. And when I told my kids this, they were like, what, why are you, no, why are you doing that? And I said, what do you mean? I thought you would be, I thought you'd be happy. I've lost track of the number of birthdays and anniversaries and, uh, soccer games that I've missed because I've been training and traveling. Like I thought you guys would be excited. I'm like, no, we we love watching you play and and telling our friends that you travel all over the world doing this. And you know, so I I think sometimes we look at like, oh man, I I need to devote more time to my studies. I need to devote more time to my to my work, to my training, to my family. And and though they they may be true in their their purest form, but I think sometimes we're a little too hard on ourselves. You know, athletes were we tend to be pretty driven. And so I think generally speaking, whatever we put our hands in, we do pretty well overall. I think that's true. We are certainly our harshest critics. And as elite athletes, you tend to see what's wrong and what you can do better versus the 90, 95% that you did exactly. well. You, right? you kind of pinpoint that 1%, that 5% that, that could be better. So I want to ask you something in a slightly different vein, which is dealing with people who are not particularly enlightened or not particularly kind and dealing with uh, discrimination. And there was a particular instance that I had read about where you had set your sights on a certain major and were part of the way to completing that major and found out I somewhere in that process that the school's administration would not let you get that degree because you were visually impaired. And can you please describe that time in a little more detail and, and how you dealt with that at the time? Because that must have been very, very difficult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it was extremely frustrating. So uh, 
when I, I graduated from high school, I went to college. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do at first. So I dabbled with a couple things, but I, I finally kind of set my sights on um, athletic training. Um, I had dealt, as, as a lot of athletes do, right? I had dealt with some injuries and I thought it was really fascinating how uh, you know, the rehabilitation of, of those injuries and, and training to prevent future injuries and things like that. I thought it was really fascinating. So I thought, I want to do athletic training. I want to work with athletes. Um, and just for clarification's sake, so the difference between athletic training and personal training. So I, be, I ended up becoming a personal trainer. The athletic trainer is the, you know, the guy or gal uh, taping the athlete's ankle. Uh, they're the first responder if, in, if a player goes down on the court or the field. They're the first ones out there. Um, you know, checking the athletes. So um, they're a little bit different quality between those two, uh, two career paths. So, um, you know, I started those classes and, and they, they knew I was visually impaired. Actually, uh, oddly enough, the, the main uh, chair for that, for that department, she was the strength and conditioning coach at my high school for a number, number of years. So I knew this person, I knew the staff, I told them, hey, this is what I want to do. They're like, sweet, this is really exciting. We would love to have you as part of this part of this program. So I started as a pre-athletic training student. So I went through a year of school. I went through uh, two full semesters and did very well. Um, you know, I, I got top marks in all my classes. Uh, I learned uh, you know, the anatomy, the physiology. I, I, I did very well with it. When it came time to selecting the students who would make it into the program, I, I was cut and and they they had a big meeting about it. They had this uh, entire you know board staff come together. I had a representative there and um, they said, because of your visual impairment, you're not qualified to be a first responder. You know if an athlete goes down, you're gonna have a hard time assessing that athlete. And uh, you know I had one of my professors at the I didn't really I don't really care for this guy anyway. I thought he was full of himself, but <laughs> he, um, he looked right at me and he said, you know, if I knew you were the athletic trainer for my daughter's basketball team, I'd get every parent together that I could and sign a petition as fast as I could to get you fired. And I was like, wow, that's, I guess at least you're being honest. Like, <laughs> you know, what do you, what do you do with that? Right. And what, what I ultimately decided was I, I had two courses of action at that point. Um, I could bring in a lawyer and and sue him and get you know get recompense for my time and money spent and um, push through and and get them to let me into the program and become an athletic trainer. But you know what I ended up thinking was, do I really want to face this the rest of my career? Right, I'm I'm a pretty stubborn dude, but at some point. You know, I got to look at it and say, do I want to drag my family through this? Do I want to have to fight this tooth and nail when I've already got all this other stuff that I'm doing, right? <laughs> so I said, you know what? I'm going to let it go. Uh, I'm going to take what I've gained in education and learning. I'm going to change to personal training and and put an emphasis on strength and performance for athletes, which is what I did. Um, graduated with an exercise science degree, got certified in strength and conditioning, a national certification in strength and conditioning. And I've loved it ever since, never looked back. You know, so there, there is a lot of that. There's a lot of people who are um, kind of ignorant to the, the capabilities of a Paralympian or just a person with a disability in general. 
and uh, most of the time it's it's totally um, if innocuous is the right word it's it's totally unintentional it's just out of uh, a lack of knowledge and understanding sometimes it's a little bit more direct and malicious like in in this particular case with this particular professor um, but you know you like in any challenge in life you step back and look at it and say okay what what are the positives that I took out of this what did I gain from this okay now what are the negatives let's try to just Put those negatives aside. Let's drop them. They're garbage. We don't need those. And let's move forward with what have what we've learned. Um, and and that's ultimately what I did with that situation. That's a tough story, but you've handled it. I think as best that you could with the people that you had to navigate around at the time. And ultimately, that has led to where you are today and to other amazing things that you've done. Building a new business, which is one called Revision Training, and I wanted to just highlight and ask you to share a little bit about the Holman Prize that you won for this business. And I know it's it's a workout app, but if you could tell the audience a little bit about it and what the Holman Prize is and what it means, because I think it's amazing that you're doing this, especially in the midst of training and raising a family and everything else. Yeah, for sure. So um, little, just a little bit of backstory in this. So, uh, you know, like I said a few times now, my main career path uh, has been as a personal trainer, right? So, and just working with everyday uh, average uh, clientele athletes, right? So this, I didn't necessarily work with visually impaired um, people, but just regular gym goers, some athletes, some elderly, some, uh, you know, new new gym goers. So um, regular trainer, right? And so I, I really enjoyed it. I loved helping um people get better. I loved helping people find fitness. And so, you know, for a number of years I did this and, and, um, my wife, who's a a super social person, uh, you know, I would, I would come home from work and she'd, Hey, so-and-so was, uh, you know, they were on this Facebook group and they're asking about how to do fitness. Like, you know, and they're, they're visually impaired. And, you know, you should, you should get on there and like talk to them about how to get started with doing fitness. And typically my response is like, I just put in a 10 hour day. Like, I don't want to teach anybody about fitness right now, (laughs) you know? So it was, I, I knew that there was this, this need out there because if you think about it, right. So, uh, you know, Sasha, even like you, you have no vision problems right now, but you know, let's, let's say like, I just said, Hey, Sasha, go ahead and stand up. And I want you to, I want you to give me a 180 Frankenstein squat. Right. And you're like, well, what in the world is a 180 Frankenstein squat? And I say, okay, well, close your eyes. All right. Now I'm going to show you ready. You're just going to move like this and do this. And you're like, what in the world did you just do? (laughs) You know? So there's, you can easily see how somebody who's visually impaired would have like this real disconnect from fitness, right? If you've never seen anybody do a push-up, how are you going to know how to do a push-up? Um, and so I knew that this was was an issue for a long time. And as I developed my, in my personal training career, I came across different opportunities to teach people who were visually impaired, you know, some teammates and things like that. And I found that I really enjoyed it. I was very good at it. and And I was like, you know, just audio describing things a lot more clearly. How do you move your body? How do you line yourself up for these different exercises? So um, about six years into working at the same fitness center for 24-hour fitness in in Florida, 
um, the company made this shift and and they moved the location of the gym that I was working at uh, down downtown essentially. So my twelve minute walk to work every day from where we were living turned into a two plus hour bus ride each direction, and I was like, oh boy. this isn't going to (laughs) work. I'm already busy enough. I can't add this into my schedule. So I stepped away from that company and started my own and said, you know what? Here's, here's my opportunity. So that's, that's where I came up with revision training. Um, That's where I came up with the fitness program that I'm developing the revision fitness uh, program and uh, the Holman prize. So big shout out to uh, the lighthouse of San Francisco. They put out a, a scholarship every year, a, a very prestigious prize, three winners every year uh, for uh, projects that are, are ambitious towards the improvement of the uh, lives of people who are visually impaired. So I put in this application for a very extensive progress and they, they said, you know what, this is a worthwhile project. Um, and, and so I was one of the recipients of the 2020 Holman Prize, which is super, super, super exciting. Um, and just now um, using some of that funding and that support to create the Revision Fitness Program, which is a totally audio-based program designed to help visually impaired people especially, but anybody to connect to fitness and, and learn how to do Anything from a very, very basic, you know, what what is good posture? What what are your shoulders supposed to do when you're lined up correctly? How you know what's extension flexion in the elbows look like? All the way to complicated, you know, burpees and presses, squats, push ups, atomic push ups, uh, you know, uh, kickboxing, um, you know, judo, uh, any anything and everything will eventually be tied up in this in this program as it grows. So uh, it's something that I'm super passionate about, super excited about. Well, congratulations on that achievement. I think it's amazing that you're doing that. And it sounds like it's very, very much needed, especially even for people who don't learn as well visually and are more auditory learners. It seems like uh, it has a, a home for many people. Yeah, you know, and it's it funny that you mentioned that. So I did kind of like a, a beta test group on some of the um, programs that I was writing. Uh, and one of my wife's cousins, she, who she's, you know, fully sighted, she's a volleyball coach, she's been very active most of her life. Um, I was running through a description of how to do push-ups. And so like one of the key factors that I use is clock face direction, right? So the way I describe this push-up is, okay, we're going to, you know, come down to the floor in a, in a um, prone position. And I want you to imagine that your, your chest is centered right over the middle of this clock. So your head is kind of pointed towards the 12. Your feet are like on the number six and your hands are, are separated just on the outside of your ribs, right at chest level. And so as you come down, you don't want your elbows pointed out at nine and three o'clock. You want them faded back just slightly, you know, left elbow towards eight o'clock, right elbow towards four o'clock. That's going to, um, you know, loosen up the, the, the ligaments in your shoulders. It's going to put the stress in your, in your chest and triceps where it should be. The way that I described this, she, she gave me feedback. She's like, I just never it never clicked for me that that's how I was supposed to do a push-up until you described it that way. And again, fully sighted, been doing push-ups her whole life. 
and it just it just you know clicked right in place for her. So I fully agree with you. It's it's something again that's kind of marketed for people who are visually impaired. But I've found a lot of people, uh, former clients, friends of mine who are sighted who have gone through some of this training, and it's really helped them a lot. No, that that sounds great. It also just reminded me I haven't done a push up in a very long, very long <laughs> time. <laughs> time to get it in, right? <laughs> yes, I will think of that. The eight and the four when I do my Beautiful. next push up. Sounds great. So I have two last questions for you. And the first is on the topic of advice, and I'd love to know. It's a two part question, I guess. The best advice that you've ever received, and what advice you would give to someone who is visually impaired or hoping to be a Paralympian one day? Hmm. Um, let, me, let me start with the second one first and um, maybe, maybe circle back around that way because uh, I've gotten that question before. Uh, you know, I, I want to be a Paralympian. I want to I be uh, a good athlete you know, whether they're visually impaired or sighted, right? Like I get that question and what do I need to do? Um, step number one is, is learn, right? So we have to be able to admit that there's a lot of things that we don't, don't know uh, about our bodies. We, this is something I taught a lot of my clients. Like we live in our bodies our whole lives and yet there's still so many things that we don't know about it. You know, we need to understand the anatomy and physiology of our bodies, um, how to take care of our bodies, how to increase that performance. So, you know, the first thing is you have to have an open mind for that that learning process, right? To to know what top athletes are doing, how they're taking care of themselves, how they're getting better. So just be a sponge for that kind of knowledge. And then the next step is to apply that, right? You can know a lot of things, but if you don't apply them, then it doesn't really do you any good. And, and just not being afraid of that work, not being afraid of the grind. Um, you know, training, is, as I'm sure you can attest to, Sasha, is it's, uh, it's repetitive. It's relentless. It's, it's, a, it's a grind. It's a day after day, um, sometimes almost mind-numbing, uh, repetitious action. Right. But, uh, you know, it's like, um, it's the idea of, of, uh, a lot of pixels coming together to form a full picture, you know, one or two pixels isn't going to do it, but you start jamming hundreds of thousands to millions of pixels together and you start to see this big picture. And that's what being an elite athlete is all about. Like you're not going to be an elite athlete in one day, one week, one month, one year, and maybe even one decade. Right. But, the consistency over that time of just challenging yourself to be better tomorrow than you are today and to be better today than you were yesterday is is the way that you you reach that goal you know and this is this is something i talk a lot about when i teach the the principles that i i i teach during my motivational speeches right so seeing the champion within yourself which a little play on words, right? It's like <laughs> seeing the champion in yourself, and it's uh, it's all about that that consistency, along with a couple other points that I run through. Um, so that's that's the advice that I would give to anybody looking to be successful in this: is you know, learn, but don't be afraid of that grind, and and look at it in the for the long haul. Um, 
And uh, it's I, very well said. I appreciate that. I, I, as, as far as advice that I've gotten over the years, I've gotten a lot of good advice. I, um, weirdly enough, uh, the one thing that really comes to mind, and I don't know if this is uh, so much advice or maybe just a kick in the pants that I needed at this time, but um, it, I, I had struggled for a long time and, and maybe to a slight degree still do with confidence issues. Um, and, and I've talked to people about this and it, it kind of blows them the way, you know, the way, what I do in my life and the, the elite sports that I've done. And I, I have no problem getting up in front of groups and talking to like, you struggle with confidence issues. That's a little weird. I never would have thought that. But when I was, uh, um, early in my career, right. So 2002, 2001, 2002, looking at my first Paralympic games, um, where our team had kind of gone through a little bit of a shuffle. Uh, after Sydney, we had several veterans that stepped away. I, I say we, I wasn't part of the team then, but that was one of the things that kind of opened the door for me uh, to, to get on the USA team at that time. And our coach was a new coach. He was a former collegiate basketball coach and, um, you know, was, was really, he came in and wanted to shake things up a little bit. And, uh, you know, so he, he, he wanted athletes. He wanted guys that were hungry. He wanted guys that were willing to listen and learn and grow. And um, I remember talking to him one day about, you know, how, how we were going to arrange the team, what defensive lineups we were going to do. And I said, you know, I, I've played a little bit of center at, at a recent tournament in our junior nationals. And, you know, if you want me to do that here and say, hey, yeah, go ahead, give it a shot. Let me see what you got. And, and I did it and I did pretty well. And I kind of came off the court and I said, you know, I kind of messed up here or there. I did this. And, and he looked at me and he said, you know what your problem is? You don't have enough confidence in yourself. You need to recognize your, your own skill. You need to recognize that you have a lot of ability and stop doubting yourself so much. And I struggled with that over the years, just struggled with it. But I constantly pushed back against that. And, and I've, I've gotten to a pretty good point in my life where I've been able to kind of work work through that but that was maybe to stand out some of the best advice that I have and like I said it wasn't wasn't super profound but it was kind of a kick in the pants like listen you gotta you gotta get over this you know and um it, it really it helps put my feet on a better path I think thank you for sharing that I think it really resonates personally and I'm sure for many people listening particularly in the world of sports this fake it till you make it attitude that's almost necessary when you're going out and millions of people are watching yeah. and you're dealing with an injury and you didn't have the best practice last week and you have to say, I'm the best, I'm going to be flawless, it's going to be great. Kind of understanding that fine line between real confidence and not allowing the negative to enter. And I think it's important for people to hear that even such accomplished athletes as yourself struggle with that, right? And you're an amazing public speaker. And and then to hear that, you know, you have some issues with confidence, I think is just helpful for people to know that it's something that they can work through and look within and challenge that belief or assumption and that things don't come naturally or easily to most people. It's something that we commit to and we work through to get to where we want to be. So Thank you for that specifically. Absolutely. And, and I fully agree. I, I echo that sentiment. Like the, the elite athlete, I think, is somebody that you can look at and, and 
generally speaking, not see a lot of genetic innate talent. <laughs> like maybe, maybe to a degree, I don't, I don't want to speak out of turn, but it's just these are people who are so used to just grinding through those challenges that they that they're successful despite the maybe the lack of confidence or the the asthma they had growing up or the visual impairments or the you know whatever it is they're just so used to grinding through those things that uh, that they they produce success out of a spot that maybe shouldn't shouldn't really grow success so um, it, I I agree with you I think it's important for people to hear that because you you know, it's a, it's a, not a great way of saying it, but it's not the cards you're dealt. It's how you play your hand, right. It's something that I try to share with people and, um, whatever situation you're in, um, you know, only, you know, that only, you know, that struggle. So I'm not trying to say, Oh, it's totally easy. It's not easy. Right. But overcoming those challenges and grinding through it is something that I know you're capable of. And, and that's what I love to teach this. I, I landed some of the best careers as a personal trainer and motivational speaker, Man, it's so much fun to to work with people on this stuff. So I think you're spot on, Sasha. It's a matter over mind. For sure. Certainly. For sure. And that brings me to my last question, which I ask all the guests on the podcast. And that is, what is your Olympic or Paralympic moment in life? Olympic or Paralympic moment in life. Uh, so so like the the biggest highlight, is that uh, is that what we're going for or... Everyone views it with a little nuance in their their own lens, gotcha. but certainly this penultimate moment that you'll never forget and has that kind of oomph similar to when you were standing on the podium. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, um, within career, within sport, uh, I've definitely had those moments of one that stands out in particular. Um almost kind of movie-esque style. You know, when it when we went to Athens in 04, we we walked away with a bronze medal. Um, you know, lost the semifinal match uh in a pretty disappointing game and came into the the bronze medal match with, you know, a little a little bit of heavy hearts, but kind of that that fervor to try to try to prove ourselves. And um we went into halftime down four to one. Uh, against Team Canada, and so it was not not looking very good, right? But um, we ground back uh, little by little, and ended up tying up the score with a few minutes left, and you know, we're trading shots back and forth. And with 17 seconds to go, uh, they threw a penalty, and so in in the sport of goalball, a lot like in soccer, uh, a, a penalty kick. It's you know. One one goalie, one kicker, right? So that's kind of what it is in goalball. It's one defender, one thrower. And uh, so 17 seconds left. The score is tied. The ball is in my hands. And uh, I walk over to one of my teammates as everybody's getting set up for this penalty shot. And I look at him. I'm like, all right, what do I do? And he said, just do whatever you feel is right, man. I was like, well, that wasn't helpful, but thank you. <laughs> and I was obviously like, oh man, here we go. You know, like, and uh, I, I executed the play. Uh, I don't want to say flawlessly, but I executed it very well. We scored and held them to a, a one point victory and won the bronze medal. And it was just this, you know, the buzzer rang and I, I 
pretty sure I jumped nine feet in the air. Like it was just awesome. I got to pull out the flag and and walk around the court with the flag waving it. My my dad was there. Um, see the only games he's been able to travel to, he was there watching me do this. And so it was, it's just such a cool experience. And like for that to almost even kickstart my career, like it wasn't the very, very beginning, but that was really early in my career. And that just, that just fed into this like love for those moments that, uh, that I'm always striving for. That reminds me of so many moments in my career and moments like that I've watched on TV. I think that's why everyone loves the Olympic and Paralympic Games. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time today. I'm wishing you so much luck going into Tokyo 2020 in 2021, which is finally happening. And um, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate the time, Sasha. Thank you so much. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.